I was in a hospital elevator not long ago after visiting someone who was sick. On my way down to what I hoped was the parking garage, but I was beginning to doubt it. I was confronted there with three questions. The elevator was full, though I was the only one in it, filled with the presence of the person I was just visiting, filled with thoughts of her upstairs in her bed doing the work of getting better, filled with her terror of losing control and also her gratitude for the kind nurses who had been caring for her. I never know whether the presence I bring to people in the hospital is helpful. I so often feel in the way of the healing medical staff and a bit awkward sometimes too. But I always leave having had the sense that a gift has been given to me, a clue of what it means to be human. All of this was in the elevator with me, along with the sure knowledge that once again I couldn't remember what level I parked on and whether I still had my ticket to get out of the garage when I noticed a sign on the elevator wall, one of those motivational messages from the hospital, a picture of a woman sitting at a desk in a blue suit, thoughtful, substantial-looking, clearly not someone who would lose her parking ticket or forget the levels she parked on. And then the heading above her read, Responsibility followed by three questions. Have you answered all your emails today? <laughs> Have you responded promptly and courteously to all your voicemails and texts? Are you at your desk when you say you will be there? Be a responsible person. Now, I don't know if this message was meant as a reminder for the hospital staff or as a helpful nudge for people like me who tumble into elevators, get lost, and lose their ticket. For people in the world at large, or maybe it's directed at patients who, after all, have all this free time on their hands and they can <laughs> finally get their sloppy lives in order. Answered all your email? At your desk, no excuse. So I just had enough time to mutter three no's. As I looked up at the woman of the poster, who by now was looking really smug and self-righteous. <laughs> Have you answered all your email? Have you devoted enough attention to your partner, your children, your parents, your coworkers, your neighbors, especially the one whose husband died a few months ago, who you know is so lonely, but it's so hard to find time, and what would you say anyway? Have you been tracking the news of the upcoming election? Have you campaigned in that election that will clearly have national and international consequences for the rest of our lives? <laughs> have you taken your vitamins and nurtured your spirit and exercised and finished your yard work so that your house doesn't look like the abandoned one? <laughs> Have you expressed gratitude, noticed all the beauty that tumbles into your days unbidden? 
How is the right way to be? Because as Tolstoy reminds us, it can't all be done. Remember back to the three questions that Tolstoy or Nikolai in the story was really asking. How is the right way to be? And for whom? For what? We make our life story as we go, not exactly randomly, but in accordance with our principles, our convictions, beliefs, and desires that are larger and much more beautiful than any to-do list, kind of like a to-be list, a running and evolving list taped to your heart in this life, however long or brief it will be. How is the right way to be? A couple of years ago, you might remember all the media frenzy uh, of the studies uh, at Harvard that were being done to discover how embedded we all are in social networks and how they affect our lives. The researchers found, and this was not exactly groundbreaking, that we have enormous influence over each other for better or for worse. That not only are viruses and germs catching, but apparently so are some other unpleasant conditions, violence, bullying, obesity, and the latest on the list, loneliness, all of them catching. But is it really alarming that human beings have a significant influence on each other? Is it really so surprising that the suffering of a lonely person we care about might cause us to reflect in a kind of somber meditative way on the vulnerabilities of all our lives, the insecure parts of our psyches. Do we really need statistical evidence to learn that what our friends wear or whether they recycle or not or tell the truth or value education influences us or that cyberbullying among teenagers is contagious? We see the influence we have on each other every day. Even the smallest germ can have big consequences. What might look like, look to someone like the sniffles in the American housing market can rapidly turn into pneumonia for the entire global economic community. What a difference small changes can make. A few preventative measures like cleaning up the graffiti in New York led in very short order, to a massive drop in the murder rate in Manhattan. It's the nature of contagions to spread rapidly at an exponential, exponential rate. Think about uncontrollable laughter. Contagious. Yawns are contagious, too. I'm tempted to do one now to see how many of you yawn. But so are smiles. If you can resist seeing a smile without having one break across your face within seconds. Beauty can be contagious, too. One person plants a beautiful flower bed in their front yard, and then everyone is doing it. To be fully human is to catch what's going around and thereby to learn year after year, hard lesson after hard lesson, what it is we want to have more of in our lives and which things we want to build immunities against. 
What did catch my imagination about contagion theory and these studies was the implication that it has for communities like ours. To the extent that we are a place where people interact a lot, and that's surely true of us, the possibilities of what we can spread to each other are endless. Now imagine what might happen if we could do the same with generosity or honesty or nonviolence or ethical behavior. Imagine an outbreak of idealism or service. Our hurting world has reached a point where unless we deliberately manufacture an epidemic of hope and goodwill, we'll surely end up with a plague of indifference and despair. Just a few people can have enormous power to affect sweeping change. In a very powerful speech at Vassar College's graduation ceremony in 2005, Tom Hanks spoke about how the exponential increase in traffic there has caused gridlock on the freeways in Southern California in a way that seems impossible to correct. And then he went on to say that some smart folks concocted a computer simulation of gridlock to determine how many cars should be taken off the road to turn a completely jammed and stilled highway into a free-flowing one. How many cars must be removed from that commute until a 20-mile drive takes 25 minutes instead of two hours? And the results were startling. The simulation showed that only four cars needed to be removed. Four cars out of each 100. Four cars per 100 cars. 40 cars from each 1,000. 400 out of 10,000. Four cars out of 100 are not many. And he asked the graduates to consider if removing only four cars out of a hundred could cure gridlock, imagine what other changes in the world could be wrought by the power of four. He said, take a hundred computer geeks in Redmond, Washington, send 96 of them home, and the remainder is called Microsoft. (laughs) Four votes swung from 100 into another hundred is the difference in an election between winning and losing. He went on, two ticket buyers out of 50 can make a small, odd film profitable. By boycotting a product, one consumer out of 25 can move that product to the back of the shelf and eventually off it altogether. Four out of 100 in this room is minuscule. And yet, that many people can be the great lever of the tipping point to create a world of justice and love. Tolstoy asked, when is the best time to do things? The answer is now. Who is the most important one? With whomever whomever is with you in the moment, which might be someone, in fact, you have in your heart at a distance, the person suffering in the midst of poverty, war, sickness, oppression, injustice. And Tolstoy's third question, 
What is the right thing to do? I know that I personally mean to be grateful, generous, compassionate, deliberate, joyful, playful, accountable, honest, responsible, and loving. Whatever. And I know from what I've learned here in ethical culture that this will have the best chance of happening if I surround myself with people who will remind me of those principles, who will hold a mirror up, so to speak, and who then I will inspire and call forth those qualities in others in turn. This way of being can never be accomplished perfectly, only partially, only clumsily, only humanly. Sometimes we choose well, sometimes we don't. We fall, we falter. And if we're lucky, we laugh and forgive ourselves and each other, and we make corrections and change course as we go on with the same beautiful intention as before. We are influenced by the people we surround ourselves with. Little things do make a big difference. A smile, a frown, a word of encouragement or a malicious remark can have consequences much larger than one might imagine. When you received your Sunday program, well, you know what what it looks like. You have one in your hand. You may have found a large index card in it. So look through your program now and see if you are one of the 10 people who who have a large index card in your program. Now, the ushers didn't know which programs had an index card inside, and so you've been randomly chosen, you with the large index cards. So if you have a card in your program, please stand. Do we have 10 people? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yes. We have 10 people. Yes. It worked. <laughs> so Amanda and Marty will give the people who are standing an envelope. But please do not open it until I say so. Ooh, isn't this just secret and exciting? <laughs> Everybody have one? All ten of you? Do you not? If anyone who has a card does not have one, please let us know. Every year, we share the plate during the month of December with our Leaders Caring Fund. And it's the pocket of money that Amanda and I use at our discretion to help out members and others in need. Oh, you can sit down. Just don't open the envelope. (laughs) And just as we try to make a difference in these folks' lives on your behalf, all of your behalf, 
The ten random people who have envelopes in their hands will have an opportunity to do something for others with funds from that same caring fund. Each of you who received an envelope will find a crisp $100 bill inside. And you can use it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you can use it however you wish. And there are only two requirements. That you make a difference. That's it. Make a difference. And then, and then, write a one-page description or so of what you did by November 7th, a month from today, just so that we can hear some of the stories at our Stone Soup Sunday, our celebration of Thanksgiving and abundance. So inside that envelope is my email, and just send your stories back when, when they happen. We are shaped by the path we choose in life and by the people on that journey with us. We shape each other in ways beyond our knowing. Here in this, our beloved community, we are charged with figuring out together what we're faithful to, each of us, what we're accountable to at the end of the day or the start of the day, and to sing it out, live it out, try it on, try it out, and pass it on. We won't find the right way in books or in old teachings. It can only be sourced from your own private armload of losses and failures and the good that has been done to you by others, sometimes when you least expected it or deserved it, and the good you've chosen to do. People who come here ask, is ethical culture a religion? It is, or it can be considered a way of life, or you can call it, as leader in St. Louis Ethical Society, Kate Lovelady says, Fred. You can call it Fred. (laughs) But however you call it, it is manifest in the stories of our lives and our willingness to participate in this great contagion of the human condition. Love is contagious. Pass it on.